Welcome to Elixir Mix, your weekly Elixir podcast talking with members of the community. My name is Mark Erickson. On our panel today, we have Eric Ostrich. Hello. And today we are joined with our special guest, Daniel. Daniel, can you introduce yourself? Hey, guys. Um, yes, yeah, so I'm uh, Daniel Serrano. Uh, I work uh, at a company called Onfido, and we do identity verification at scale. Uh, I'm uh, working off of Portugal, but we also have offices in uh, London, the US, and some other places uh, in the globe. Uh, and yeah, uh, I'm glad to be here. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. Awesome. Well, today we wanted to have you on to talk about some interesting different topics, um, one of which uh, is something I've heard about, uh, which is called mutation testing. And it's something that I understand you've uh, taken a little bit more interest in exploring this idea. And there's some other topics, obviously, we want to talk about too, like distributed tracing, a lot of good stuff. Um, so why don't you kind of open this up with kind of just explaining what mutation testing is? Yeah, sure. So um, the idea behind mutation testing is uh, really simple, and it dates back to 1978, if I'm not uh, mistaken. And it's just a way for you to check the sanity of your unit tests. So when you write unit tests, you know that you're sort of biased by the examples that you find when you're like describing your tests, right? Like you, you write a test and like, uh, the, like the, you know, when you append to a list, uh, you know that the list has to have a size bigger than one. But what, what you actually do is you test that with real examples. So you do like the empty list, and then you see that when you add an element, you check that the size of the list is now one and that the element is there. Um, so what that can lead to is that you end up being a bit biased by the, the examples that you find. What unit testing, what mutation testing uh, does is it changes, it tweaks uh, bits of your uh, source code not your tests, so your actual source code that you've written, and it will go in, modify it, and then run your tests again and see if the test is still green. If it's still green, that that's that smells like something fishy, right? Because you shouldn't be able to change your code and the tests still pass. It either means that you like tested uh, the wrong thing or that your code is wrong. So uh, to get a look, clearer on that. So when you're talking about mutation uh, that's mutating my code, is that modifying the source files on my, uh, on my computer that I'm going to now have uh, Git changes to, to review or anything like that? So no, 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 no Git changes. Uh, the thing is, uh, so we will change the source code, um, but um, it will do it in uh, a, di a different way. So you won't have your, um, 
your Git history changed or anything like that, ideally the framework for testing, uh, for mutation testing will do this for you. So it will change the, um, the, the, the code that you have and it will run your tests over and over again until it finds uh, enough tests that are still passing that will, will uh, make it consider it a red flag. If you have your source code changed and your tests still pass, that's not good. So there's um, this library that I've been writing, uh, Xavier, that we can talk about uh, later in the show. Um, it works by, it, well, it's inspired by two other libraries, uh, PyTest for JVM-based uh, programming languages and Mutant from Ruby. And the way that the, the, the JVM-based one, uh, Mutant, works is it uh, changes the JVM bytecode. It has some benefits like speed, uh, you know, in performance uh, improvements. And also there are some um, things in terms of like the mutation testing um, lingo, like uh, eliminating duplicates and whatnot that can uh, become easier um, uh, there. But uh, the really big thing is um, that I wanted to, I had this intuition about like changing the ASD in Elixir because it's so easy to do in this language with all the metric programming that's available. Uh, and that's actually the way that Mutant from Ruby does it. It has um, a lot of that uh, ASD parsing side and whatnot. And so I thought that in Elixir, this should be fairly easy to do because we have all of that support for traversing the ASD, converting code into um, the, the source, uh, a source file. So like passing on uh, from quoted code to string and whatnot. And so, yeah, that's, um, that's the idea, I guess. So if I can kind of uh, recap that a little bit, the way I understand it is then uh, your, your, your library that you're working on called Xavier uh, does an AST analysis and modifying at runtime the AST and rerunning uh, different versions of the tests. And it sounds like it's even doing it concurrently where it's able to run multiple versions of the mutations. And then it's, so if I also understand, please correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like the goal of mutation testing is not so much to validate our software as it is to validate the quality of our tests, that we are actually testing what we think we're testing and uh, that we're actually getting the value out of our tests. You know, I can, I can have like 2000 tests that run and maybe they even run fast or slow. It doesn't really matter if they're not even testing something that's valuable. Like we, we talked with uh, uh, another guest one time where he deleted the entire source code for a file, ran the test and they all pass. You know, like that's your, like your worst case scenario, right? Like you're not yeah. even testing the code. So I, I think that this is a, an approach to help uh, validate that I'm actually testing what I think I'm testing. I'm getting value out of my tests so I can identify tests that maybe as the code has changed and evolved, it's not adding value. I can just perhaps even delete those tests. Um, so does that sound fair? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So this is a way to, um, to, to show that what you're testing actually like is, is a good, um, a good set of, um, I guess, a good sample for what you're testing. So if you run your tests and um, you, if you modify the code and you see that uh, with very little modification, you get, you get the same results on the test, it's exactly the same situation that you described. So that, uh, that other uh, fellow programmer, uh, <laughs> I'm sure he had like all the best intentions when he was writing that test 
or maybe the test and the implementation diverged so much that eventually it could uh, like delete the whole source code and the test still passed. And so mutation testing is sort of an extra um, step here in, in the TDD cycle to make sure that what you're testing actually makes sense and it's useful. Now, so one question I had was, where do you see this uh, process fitting in? Is this something that I might, I might want to have as part of my regular CI, where uh, every commit, it runs these, uh, like I said, a mutation test? Or is this something that I do more um, periodically? I'll run it against my code just to kind of check in and see how things are going. Uh, you know, like, does, you know, like with property-based testing, uh, it was something we've talked about a, a fair bit. Like those, those tests can take a long time to run. Do, does mutation testing uh, run for a long period of time where that might be a consideration? Yeah, so definitely. Um, so a big disclaimer here is that I've never used mutation testing professionally. So as part of a CI build or something, but I've um, listened to talks and um, uh, I've only played with it in my spare time. But from what I hear, what people do a lot of times is they will add it as part of this, their CI pipeline. And mutation testing, is, it, it like, its core is very much based on this notion of a mutation coverage. So in unit testing, you have uh, your code coverage, right? Like, uh, does was this line run? And then you check all of the lines and you do like a sort of percentage to have like line, line coverage and whatnot. And we all know that that can be a bit brittle, but still, that's the, the coverage concept in unit testing. In mutation testing, what you do is you modify um, a certain uh, source code with a given mutator and then with another, another mutator. So imagine you can change an, equal, an equals equals sign to a greater than or equals or to a less than or equals. And you can do this through, you know, uh, a lot of different uh, mutations, the same source code running against the same set of tests. So the, the, what I mean is the same source code can be changed with a lot of different mutations and run against the same source, the, the same uh, set of tests. What can happen is then you will start to accumulate the number of tests that still pass. And considering that number against the total amount of mutations that you run, you get the uh, mutation coverage. So imagine you're running this I don't know, uh, daily is part of your pipeline against the development branch that gets released to, to staging every day. Maybe you can have a, you know, you can have it run as part of the pipeline. And when it hits uh, below a certain mutation coverage, then you can raise flags and be like, maybe you should check the scope because this is like not, uh, um, it's way below your uh, quality grade for mutation testing. I think that is an interesting idea because uh, as someone who uh, at, at times mentors junior level developers, one of the things that you know they're looking for is feedback on their uh, the quality of their code, but also the quality of their tests. And you know it's not the most enjoyable thing for me to sit and look at someone else's tests because you know like you know as as part of a TDD experience, I enjoy writing the tests as I'm writing the code. Uh, and that's kind of the way I approach it and think about it. So looking at it after the fact, you know, you have to start thinking, oh, what did they not think about? And what, what are they, uh, you know, what are they blind to here? Um, so I think this is an interesting idea of something especially helpful perhaps to, uh, 
to that scenario where I'm, I'm giving feedback to someone else who's junior, even feedback to me, you know, myself on my, the quality of my tests, you know, especially as they age over time. So I think that's an interesting idea. And so maybe you could just mention a little bit about this. Uh, so you said you, you haven't been using this in, in production system. And I presume that's probably why you went and started creating this library so that you could, right? And so could you kind of tell us a little bit about uh, where you see this library uh, fitting and when you hope to be able to kind of uh, announce this and share this with people? Yeah, definitely. So uh, yeah, it's it just the library is called Xavier, like you said, and uh, it's going to be hopefully available really soon under uh, GitHub, my GitHub, Ian Elsperano slash Xavier. We can link to it in the show notes, I guess. And um, the idea just, it was something that I wanted to do for fun initially. And I know that it can potentially benefit uh, what I'm doing daily. So definitely I see this if it's successful and if I get, uh, if I get it to a, a mature enough state that I can run it in as part of a, the CI pipeline um, at my company's projects. I'm like, I think that that'd be like the holy grail uh, of having this, you know, being used in real life scenarios. So yeah, definitely see it happening in the, in the future. So you mentioned that the mutations were in parallel. Um, how does that work with recompiling modules and the fact that there can only be one of them? Um, like, does that introduce a lot of extra test failures if you're multiple, if like if you're editing like 10 modules at the same time? Yeah, that's a great question. So from what I've seen uh, so far, uh, what happens is I can only have one version of each module being compiled, like you said, Eric. So uh, what I'm doing is uh, I'm running the mutations on each module in parallel. So I can change potentially the module A and module B in parallel because they're not the same, right? Uh, but inside each one, I have different mutators that can be applied to, the, to that source code of module A, for instance. Imagine I can apply mutator M1, M2, and M3 to module A. I will then run sequentially the A modified with M1, A modified with M2, and A modified with M3, and so on. But I will be doing that in parallel with modules B, C, D, etc. So this is definitely a limitation and something that I've thought about. And we can do some nasty things like changing the name of the modules in runtime to make it maybe work. But uh, yeah, that's <laughs> maybe... Um, far ahead in the future, but uh, definitely it's a lot of interesting problems here um, regarding actually making it work for Elixir. Another one that I think was uh, great of tackling uh, and that led me to writing a blog post about like a deep analysis of the hex unit and how it works. Um, of course, I could only cover part of it because hex unit is just massively huge when you start looking into it. It's simple, but at the same, at the same time, you get the feeling that it's a lot of work has, has been put into it, uh, which makes it great and makes it um, awesome for developers to work with and uh, enjoy it working. But um, one of the things is reporting the failures. Because what, what, what you can do is, or at least what I found I could do, was use the formatter in a hackish way. So you know how you have J, the JUnit formatter to report XML? I, was, I would just like pry into that and add a formatter, a specific Xavier formatter to the, to the test um, suit 
and then that formatter would report back to a gen server that I that I ha- that I have running all the failures or successes of the tests running, and then I would accumulate that, and in the end, I just do that gen server, the reporter dot report, and it will give me the results of running that. So I think like I really felt uh, proud of using the formatter in such a hackish, dirty way, because uh, you know at the same time. It's such a powerful tool, the formatter, because it uh, it has callbacks for like when the suit is started, when the test is started, finished, and so you can get a whole lot of information from that. And all of those callbacks come with tags for each test, uh, with the files that were run, and so I could really like get the power, get the feel for the power of uh, X unit and the information that it leverages in in runtime. So it's a, this is a bit of an aside, but um, I have also abused formatters for uh, good, I guess. Um, so one of the Ruby gems I've done is uh, RSpec API documentation. And that whole thing is just like, it runs your test suite and you have to add dash dash formatter, the rad formatter. And like, then it, it does the same thing. So it hooks in, grabs everything. And, and uh, that one dumps out documentation based on your test. But yeah, so the, Totally, totally cool to abuse the formatter. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was uh, the way of doing it at the time, and I, I, I honestly didn't didn't look much further than just like it just popped in my mind. Okay, how does JUnit formatter does it? And uh, yeah, um, just went ahead with it. Well, it sounds like you've uh, had some interesting experiences and along this journey, and I know that you you put out a really nice blog article. Uh, not too long ago uh, about X unit and then doing a deep dive. And I, I presume some of these, I don't know, was that part of your journey while you're trying to figure this out? You're like, let me dig into X unit and see how it's working. It, so, cause I think it's a great resource and um, we will put that in the show notes uh, as a link to that article, but maybe you could kind of share some of the, the learnings you had in the process. I don't know anything you'd like to just kind of share about X unit and your discovery along that process. Yeah, uh, so definitely the blog post comes as a consequence of this work for Xavier and the mutation testing framework that I'm building. Um, and it was an interesting challenge because a lot of the things that, like the one that I'm seeing here, uh, for instance, the using the formatter in this way to, to kind of get the aggregate the results of tests that were failing or passing, um, it, it led me to this journey of like understanding how Xenus worked underneath the covers like how it record the tests. How does it know that uh, a certain test uh, has these tags? Uh, how is it so so damn fast? That's one of the questions that I really wanted to, to have answered as well. Because, uh, you know, being in, um, in projects where the, the pipelines take so much time to run, we have in, in a, one of the projects that I work mostly with now, uh, with some other colleagues, we have um, more than a thousand tests now and it runs in under nine seconds. And we're always amazed by like how fast X unit is, right? And so these two things, like wanting to understand how, how it was so fast and then wanting to understand some of the internals so that I could make Xavier work, uh, it really led me to this journey of understanding uh, a bit of how the parallelization works, um, some of the, of the, even the trade-offs in terms of readability that may end up happening in the way that X unit is um, is made. Like I remember this. Um, that there's something that I talk about in the blog post um, about like 
doing the, the loading of the modules with XUnit server. And it's a bit cryptic, but I ended up like understanding how it works. And it, like when you just dig into it, it just becomes so much clearer. And at the same time, like you take a step back and you realize like, damn, these guys in the Elixir core team, like they're working hard, <laughs> you know? Uh, so yeah, it was definitely an interesting uh, deep dive. That is really cool. Uh, so I, I think it's kind of worth mentioning um, just as, as an aside, like where the name Xavier came from, I think. Uh, you, you expressed some uh, ideas around that. I thought it were fun. Yeah. So uh, the name Xavier comes from the comics books that I used to read as a kid. Uh, and that I'm sure a lot of our fellow uh, nerd listeners as well uh, read. So Xavier is the, the Professor X from uh, X-Men. Um, and yeah, it's just like the overall nicest, coolest guy with, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, very nice superpowers and I wanted to have him uh, in some sort of homage and this was the perfect excuse because you can use the EX to do some clever naming, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think it's, uh, you were showing us like some of the output of your, uh, the, uh, like a mutation test run and it's like, was it mutates, mutants killed and mutants survived? And Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So uh, for the fellow X-Men readers out there, maybe I should have called this Sentinel or something, but uh, <laughs> I, I thought that Xavier was perfect uh, just because it ties so nicely with the EX. So yeah, mutants and all that. Uh, That's fun. It's just starting up a school of mutants. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hopefully a good one. Yes. Was there anything else you want to mention about uh, mutant and mutant uh, mutation testing before we jump into some interesting stuff you wanted to, we, we could talk about about Broadway? Uh, yeah, no, I think that's it about mutation testing. Uh, I guess you guys just uh, watch out. And if you want to help out, I'll have a nice uh, to be done section in the readme um, that uh, you two have already seen. And uh, there are a couple of ways that you can contribute if you are interested in this uh, area. And uh, we can maybe work together and make an awesome mutation testing library. Yeah, I think you were just uh, wanting to kind of put together a blog post, kind of introducing it and to, to kind of announce it. Uh, so we, I'll be looking forward to that. And uh, I'll make sure to uh, tweet about that and forward that on. Uh, so please follow me at Brainlid at, on Twitter. Um, but also, uh, obviously follow Daniel. And so, but we'll give your Twitter and everything. You can go ahead and mention it right now. Why don't you? Uh, yeah. So my Twitter handle is, uh, D N L Serrano. So that's D N L S E R R A N O. Right. So if you're interested in following, uh, when this gets announced, uh, hopefully soon, uh, that'll be awesome. So I wanted to also talk about some really interesting stuff you're talking about with load testing Broadway. And, and what I thought was fun about it is um, you're using some tools that's like I used. So you, you mentioned this tool like JMeter, which is an Apache uh, project. And it's something I used a long time ago, uh, back when I was doing .NET uh, to kind of load test uh, a project. And, and kind of demonstrate uh, that this solution can handle 60 times more of the volume than this other solution. And it gives nice statistical analysis. And that was many years ago. It's been a long time since I've looked at it. I would love to hear about how you were approaching this uh, with the kind of the needs that you were trying to solve uh, at, at, at your job and, and the, what you're trying to do there. 
Yeah, sure. So, um, well, this whole thing started with um, us going to, uh, so me and some teammates um, going to ElixirConf in um, in Prague, and we ended up like seeing the announcement that Jose Valin did uh, of Broadway, and we were thinking about using it, and we ended up actually using it uh, in very in a very early stage uh, still, and it worked nice and dandy, but uh, we wanted to load test the application, see how it how well it behaved, and I can go into details about how why we needed to use Broadway uh, in in a second, but. Coming back to JMeter and why we used it, we have this um, senior engineer at the company, Ruben, uh, a colleague of mine, who had been using JMeter uh, to test some other services in his team um, on the document side uh, of what we do at Anfido. And so we had his expertise already of how to work with JMeter, the, the, all the amazing graphs that you mentioned that it uh, provides uh, out of the box. And so we just, uh, he, he had a, like a pairing session with uh, our test engineer, Leash, and they uh, both uh, created like the suite of um, tests to be run in JMeter, the, the, the suite with like the requests and um, the expected responses and whatnot. And then they just load tested the app and we got to see it shape a lot <laughs> in, in staging. And so we had to eventually go ahead and fix it. And some of that had to do with, you know, just a, a bad mental model of what Broadway was doing. And uh, it came down to uh, reading the manual, right? Understanding correctly what it did and what variables we needed to tweak when configuring it. And um, yeah, it was like a, a really good um, teamwork and team exercise that we all got around um, to, to try and fix this problem. Uh, I think like in total, maybe five people, um, three backenders working on the project that was under load. And then the two guys that actually like did the much more of the work around uh, the requests that were being, that were to be done and whatnot. Cause they were looking more, they were looking at it more in the, the the user's perspective and us more in the, okay, how do we handle this much load perspective and what do we have to do to fix it? So it was definitely interesting. And um, yeah, came down to like misconfiguration of Robin. So before we get too far, um, maybe we should take just a tiny bit step back and uh, I guess explain what Broadway is, just in case people haven't heard of this. Yeah, so we've had some previous podcasts where we uh, talked about Broadway and uh, when it, especially when it was announced, uh, it was a very exciting kind of development in the Elixir space. And so one of the things that was interesting is that you have uh, GenStage, uh, which is an external library. It's not a core library. And then we, and as part of GenStage, they have producers. And, and so they, they're coming up with a, um, a way to kind of put this all together and to kind of wrap around it some of the things that you need to do as, as a user of GenStage and like pr the proper shutdown of a system, how you're able to kind of drain the pool of what's being worked on before um, shutting down, kind of gracefully shutting down without uh, dropping a work that's been partially completed. So they built Broadway as a way of doing that. And they called it Broadway because you have GenStage, like stages and producers. So it's like Broadway as in like musical productions. So I thought it was a kind of a, a fun little uh, background of how it was named. Uh, so Broadway, but it's, it's like basically a, 
a wrapper around GenStage that makes it easier to use in a responsible way. Uh, but it's... Uh, yeah. And the good thing about it is, I think, that uh, it, it comes in with, um, built, with built-in uh, SQS support. And that was our use case at Onfido. Nice. So we were using um, the, the architecture that we have currently relies on Ruby processes doing queue jobs in, in rescue. And then they will eventually call each one of those rescue jobs. We'll do a call to this um, service, this microservice that's written in Elixir that handles all the work, the heavy lifting of doing a bunch of parallel calls to research um, microservices that aggregate results um, that have to do with uh, stuff like face matching and um, uh, anti-spoofing and whatnot. So Elixir was a great use case for that, but uh, we had all of this legacy work uh, done already in, in Ruby that was, you know, putting, offloading the, the work to rescue workers and then just waiting on replies from uh, that Elixir microservice. What was happening here was that um, each one of those workers, even though we have two ways of uh, contacting on Fido, one synchronously and one, another one asynchronously, even when the request was asynchronously, the rescue worker would still, so it would be, um, spawn up in an asynchronous way. So we would just hand the job to it and go away, do the rest of our job, do the rest of our work uh, and not care about it. But inside of it, the rescue worker would still hold a synchronous, uh, would still be synchronous in the, in, in the sense that it would still hold and wait for a reply from the, micro, from the Elixir microservice. So what we, what we found here as a, a potential uh, way of speeding things up and making it much more efficient was um, have it offloaded to an asynchronous, uh, what we called the asynchronous uh, job skew that would get picked up by uh, this Elixir microservice and that would process the messages as it could and as it had the, the ability. And then it would, uh, after it was done, reply back to another queue that would be picked up by the legacy Ruby application. So it seems like the perfect use case for Broadway, right? Because they support SQS out of the box. So we just had to, we had this um, inherent uh, pattern of producer consumer. And so we just thought, yeah, just, we'll just go with this. And it, it made perfect sense and it's working fine in production now. But uh, before load testing, uh, I must tell you, it wasn't uh, that joyful. I do want to kind of touch on something that I think is valuable to think about, which is the, the value of actually having an idea about how to, how to solve a problem and then making the effort to actually load test it rather than just like throw it out into production and say, well, let's just see if it blows up. Right. You know, because when it's a small app and you're just kind of playing around, that's totally cool. No one cares if it goes down, really. It's not something critical. It's not solving a business need. Uh, but, you know, uh, CEOs, uh, they may not be very happy with uh, that as an approach. So I think it's just kind of worth talking about, like, how you approach the idea of saying, well, we want to make this change. We see that there could be value here. Uh, we want to validate that it can actually scale to the level that we care about and that's important for our business. So just kind of maybe if you could share a little bit about the, the thought process about how you went about um, doing that. It, it sounds like you had some resources available in your side of your company that already had some experience. 
So maybe you could just talk a moment about that. Yeah, definitely. So uh, this uh, senior engineer that I talked to you about, Ruben, he was, I think, inside of our company, the one that uh, took it more seriously. And like he did the work of like having dedicated dashboards for when we were load testing, the metrics that he wanted to, to look at inside his, uh, his own services in his team. And then with that knowledge and because, you know, it's uh, still... Uh, a good, a good, like a, a good enough size that we can still all talk to each other, and we all know each other fairly well. So we were talking with him, and uh, my team lead uh, is actually also a big proponent of like load testing and seeing how things work uh, at scale before they even reach production. And I'm learning a lot of that right now as well, because um, before and in previous places that I've been, we we would do just that. So we would have the good enough solution that runs in, in, you know, staging or whatever development environment. And then, well, it's working here. Let's just put it in production and see if it crashes. And oftentimes what will happen is you will, it will either crash or you will see major contention uh, issues and bottlenecks in your application after the fact. And what we could do here is we could identify all of those prior to releasing this for everyone and seeing customers be affected and complaining and submitting support tickets and just overall, like degrading the, the perception of our company. Um, so I think, yeah, that's something that I'm learning myself. And I think the, that uh, a lot of people inside my company have already embraced it, embraced it much more. So yeah, I'm still learning as well. So was that uh, part of that process and that discovery, was that kind of what led you into distributed tracing? Yes. In terms of, yeah, like yeah, having for, to diagnose what was going on uh, and how to isolate where the problems and bottlenecks were? Definitely, yeah. So part of it as well. We wanted to have distributed tracing for a while and we've been, we had been uh, taking a stab at it uh, for numerous times. And uh, that was also the subject of uh, a talk that I gave in uh, at ElixirConf uh, in Prague um, about the, the small contribution that I did to Spandex, which is the distributed tracing library. But the... The really good thing here is that distributed tracing can help uh, can help you identify the the places where you have those bottlenecks, and together with metrics that you have collected of how much time you're spending in in each area of your code in doing what, that really helps track down and pinpoint the issues that you're facing. And definitely, that's one of the reasons why we bet so much on distributed tracing was during the load testing period. So could you give a backup a little bit and just kind of share, uh, like people may have heard the, the term tracing, like how is that, what is distributed tracing and how is that different? Yeah, so distributed tracing is just a method to profile and monitor your applications. Specifically when you're in a microservices architecture, you start to have a lot of traffic going on from app A to app B to app C. And when you know you have an issue and you, from the user's perspective, you just see an error, you don't know at which point in that, uh, shall we call it, pipeline of requests or uh, flow of interactions between your microservices, you end up not knowing what happened in the middle, what caused the failure that you're seeing uh, at the front. So what distributed tracing gives you is by you submitting a series of uh, specific headers, tagged with uh, what, what is called in the open tracing standards, 
the span IDs, the request, the, um, the parent IDs and whatnot, you can see a full trace of your request within the different microservices that you have. And in that way, you can have um, metrics associated to it in terms of like the DB performance, like how much time you spend on a given query uh, for that request. You can see that the problem was specifically in microservice X. Uh, for instance, uh, at Onfido here, we do a lot of our technology deals with a lot of like face detection and um, stuff like that. So we can, it's really fun to like open your dashboard and see that clearly the issue was that a face was not found in this picture. Like you can just see that the service that would do um, the, the face work just can't find a face. So you get like, uh, we use Datadog internally and you you get um, a really big uh, like red sign around the box of that microservice saying, here, here's the problem. And you should look into this because, um, and when I say like the face not being there, it can either be because no face was there actually, or because our service has a problem and it wasn't trained uh, with some, um, with some like weird category of images. So it's really useful and in a clever way of just passing headers around, HTTP headers around, you can get the full picture of your uh, service architecture. Um, so is this distributed tracing, is that how you were able to uh, get metrics out of the load testing to, to know that what you're doing was, was like actually doing what you're hoping? Uh, part of it, yeah. but. The big thing I think were uh, actually uh, Datadog dashboards combined with uh, Amazon uh, CloudWatch metrics. And the big problem that we felt when using Broadway had to do, uh, one of the problems uh, had to do with um, Q, the, the Q visibility timeout, which basically just tells you how much time a message will be, um, will not be visible uh, after you've uh, acknowledged to have picked it up. So imagine um, like you pick up a message from the queue, you hold it for like say 20 seconds. If the visibility timeout is 20 seconds, then then it will get requeued because you know it, it was picked up by someone, but maybe that someone crashed. You didn't receive an act after it was processed. So the way that it works is it will use that visibility timeout to requeue it so you can reprocess it. And it does, it, it does this up to, in our case, up to three times. Um, so what we were seeing is that we were getting a lot of those uh, requeues happening in the, in, the, in the processing. And we eventually tracked it down to, uh, obviously, the visibility timeout was set to something like 10 seconds or something. And we need a bit more than that to actually process a request. Specifically, we need to up to three times that. So what we were seeing is because uh, this service does a lot of, uh, like I hinted at before, uh, parallel calls to research microservices that do a lot of things regarding face, anti-spoofing and whatnot. We, and those algorithms are inherently uh, a bit slower than your usual like operation, you know, CPU operation, because it has uh, a model associated with it and it's fairly uh, CPU intensive. It takes a while. So we were taking a bit longer than expected and we could just tweak that value, that visibility timeout metric 
to just be some other value. And that would then get us the way to actually process the request so it wouldn't get requeued and we could process everything as expected. But then another problem came along, which was now we were being able to process the, the messages, but after a while, we still got the visibility timeout and we now didn't understand why. Like, why are we getting the visibility timeout if we are being able to process the messages in their time? Uh, what was happening was a configuration in Broadway. Because we were uh, setting the minimum and maximum demand wrongly, we were actually consuming more messages from the queue that we could actually process. So we would like pick up, uh, I guess it was 10 or 20 in a batch and then try to process all of those, but we couldn't because because of contention in the Python microservices. So because those research microservices are obviously written in, in Python, uh, popular language for research stuff. Um, and so we tracked it down to having to tweak minimum and max demand. So long story short, the solution here was really the Broadway docs before you get too excited after you listen to the talk in ElixirConf. <laughs> Yeah. And then uh, also try to validate the design uh, with some load testing. But I, I am curious, like after you've been through this process and have, what, what's your end result with Broadway? Are you guys happy with the, the result of it? Is it doing what you want? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're totally happy with it. We've uh, seen like the most amazing graph in terms of uh, like the, the time that a, a worker now spends, a rescue worker now spends, um, actually doing some work because before it was like, you know, we offloaded a job to rescue. It would do the request and hold on for that response. And now it just like enqueues the message and it's done with it. And so that has allowed us to uh, not spend uh, as much resources in terms of like number of rescue workers doing that um, sort of, um, you know, I'm yeah, just like waiting for IO time. <laughs> waiting for that IO time, exactly. And we can now do actual work that we need to do in that legacy app, because uh, I'm sure you guys can imagine that a legacy app does a lot of stuff uh, asynchronously, like with the rescue workers. And so it wasn't just stopping for IO there. It was stopping to actually, you know, not serve PDFs or something like it. So uh, it's really important to sort of offload uh, those sorts of tasks that you can to some and think about uh, another way of architecting things. And uh, that, that was like a major win for us. Uh, this is obviously not just uh, done by me, it was a joint effort uh, led by my team lead, uh, João, and also with a colleague of mine, uh, Daniel. Um, and it was overall like we were super happy with Broadway. It's serving us very well in production, powering like real user interactions and uh, making our, our lives and our jobs easier. <laughs> nice. That's a, a testament to success. So one of the other things I think was interesting, because you mentioned Spandex as the library that you were using uh, to help do some of the distributed tracing, uh, which is able to do its visualizations and send the information to Datadog. Um, I, I, I saw a, a talk where you were um, at the ElixirConf EU, where you were kind of talking about your journey. Uh, I liked your title. It was like uh, Noob to Contributing Noob. And yeah. I, so we'll, we'll include a, a link to that talk so people can check it out. 
But I was just kind of curious about how your uh, experience learning Elixir and in the in community, what that's been like and how, uh, how rewarding or frustrating or kind of what just what your experience has been. So I got to know Elixir around, uh, I think, 2015, maybe. Um, and it was through two other engineers that I know from the previous company I worked at, and they kept talking about it. Um, like I, I, I speak about, I talk about it in, in that talk that you, that you mentioned, uh, they kept talking about it, about this like new language that was uh, created by the guy that uh, was working on device in Ruby. And, um, you know, at the time I sort of brushed it off and it, I, I didn't, uh, care much about it, to be honest. Uh, but then when I was uh, interviewing for this company that I'm now working at, uh, the director of engineering there, Paulo, um, was super excited about it. And he he was saying like, oh, this is like the, the next best thing. Like um, it sits on top of the Erlang and their Erlang is so great and like uh, used by Ericsson, so scalable and like... Uh, Ruby's yesterday's news and uh, and I was like uh, okay like uh, but uh, I'm gonna be doing Ruby right uh, and he's like yeah you're gonna be doing Ruby but like but uh, Elixir is so cool <laughs> and maybe we can have some uh, cool projects in here um, and yeah like I, I heard about it so then I was more kind of interested in it because <laughs> I was seeing uh, my new boss being excited by it so I guess it's uh, good omen to, to be excited about as well. Um, and then um, these two colleagues of mine, Andre and uh, Daniel, they have actually wrote a book uh, called Elixir in Action. And so they had a ton of experience in, in the language. Um, and my team lead, Joao, has written uh, and developed two series of webcasts for Pact uh, on Elixir Basics and then on um, OTP, advanced OTP, um, and so like, it was a lot of knowledge built in house and for a small company, well, not super small, but, uh, the, the office, the office here in Portugal is fairly small still. Um, and it was a lot of knowledge built up there. And so like, I had to learn from it and, uh, it was just a joy to work with the language itself. The community is very like embracing of uh, new people, uh, new backgrounds, uh, and different ways of looking at problems and uh, of solving them. And I think like the, the experience has been uh, great so far. Um, I can only like speak um, and tell good things about the Elixir community. Uh, like I say in my talk, I don't think it's like a coincidence that uh, Joseph Valim comes from the Ruby community. I think that he helped shape that community there and it's now bringing uh, that niceness that he has and uh, his way of, of dealing with, with things into the Elixir community. And I think we have like a lot of great people um, like uh, you guys with the podcast as well. Um, there are like lots of the podcast community is great actually in Elixir. It's like we have like three or four podcasts um, and um, it's, I mean, everything is just a breeze. Yeah. Loving it. Awesome. So one of the things I think um, I just want to touch on briefly is the idea of like noob to contributing noob. It sounds like even though you're, you're actually contributing to other libraries, to authoring your own library, there's still a sense of, I feel like I'm a noob. And right. And I, I think, is that, is that part of that um, imposter syndrome? Do you think? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think the imposter syndrome is very real <laughs> and I, I feel it. 
Um, but yeah, it's just uh, also the idea that like you don't have to be this rock star developer to start contributing and to give back. I mean, I knew nothing about like uh, the process dictionary before I looked into Spandex, you know, and it just so happens that Spandex, the distributed tracing library uses the process dictionary. And so like I learned something and I could contribute back with something. And uh, it also turns out that I could only because the people there were nice, uh, Greg Mefford and Zach Daniel. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's just like go for it. And I guess if you don't know stuff, just ask. And eventually, uh, I think what I've come to find is the Elixir community is nice enough to just explain instead of like bashing or like, uh, something weird. Um, so it's been great, but yeah, still a noob, forever noob. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Forever growing, learning. Right. But that's been my experience too, that it is a wonderful community and I enjoy being a part of it. Well, is there anything else uh, that you wanted to talk on um, or mention before we go to picks? No, I think that's it. All right. Uh, well, let's go to picks. Uh, Eric, do you have one to share? Yeah. So I've, I've been, uh, I guess this sort of ties in a bit with some uh, media announcements. So I've been, I just started rereading The Wheel of Time. Um, so I'd, I'd gotten, I hadn't finished it before, but uh there's a TV show coming out sometime in the future within the next year, I think. Um, and a few other things that have kind of lined up. So I've started rereading the eye of the world. I just finished that last week. So definitely can recommend that. And if you like big epic fantasy, there are a lot of them to read. So <laughs> nice. Awesome. I was going to share one. It is, uh, it's from our talk that we had last week with, uh, Brujo. I don't recall if this was mentioned as part of the, uh, the, the discussion, but it was this fun talk. It's only five, it's less than five minutes long. It's called WAT, like W-A-T. It's a lightning talk that was given by Gary Bernhardt uh, back in 2012, but it is hilarious. It's really well done. It's just making kind of like the funny little quirks of Ruby and JavaScript and just super entertaining. Uh, so I, I would recommend that one. And uh, I think I'll do one more, which is uh, there's a, a service that's uh, been in, in use now uh, from Firefox, from the Mozilla Foundation. It's called Firefox Send. So it's at send.firefox.com. And what is handy about this one is it gives you the ability to securely send large files to other people who don't have to have an account even. And you can specify that I want this to be available for a, spirit, uh, a certain period of time or for a only one download or two downloads or, or whatever kind of requirement like that. And it can be like 1.5 gig. And if you set up an account, then it can be like two gig or so, something like that. Uh, but it's, uh, you know, sometimes when you're wanting to share, maybe like you recorded a video and you want to share it with somebody and you don't want to, you know, Dropbox may not be the, the easiest way or the preferred approach. So send Firefox is a, a fun one to try. So that's it for me. Daniel, how about you? Yeah, so I have, uh, I guess, three picks. So the first one is a TV show. I've been watching uh, Dark, uh, a German TV show, sci-fi, uh, with my girlfriend, and we just like binge-watched the, the two seasons <laughs> really quickly. And it's just great. If you like stuff like uh, Lost and uh, I guess even Stranger Things, and I think it's way better than Stranger Things. Like, no, no offense to American TV shows, but like this German one is just awesome. Um, so yeah, go watch uh, Dark on Netflix. Um, 
the second thing I'd like to mention is Lightline. Uh, so I use Vim. I've been like a, a Vim user for, for a while now. And I, I don't want to get the, the whole editor's uh, discussion started, but <laughs> I just it works for me. Uh, and uh, so this uh, plugin is called Lightline.Vim. I've been using Vim Airline for uh, years now. And this one is like lighter in, um, you know, way of thinking about designing it, the features that it provides, it's just less stuff. And I've been like wanting to uh, sort of minimize my, my, my whole life, I guess, after I watched that uh, minimalism documentary. So that can be reference uh, number four, I guess. And the third one would be um, Flow. The library that um, you know the the, the core team uh, of Elixir have developed. Uh, I know this has been a while, uh, around for a while, but um, I was having to do some ad hoc scripting for getting data out of a database um, the other day, and in a breeze, I could get like parallel queries to the read replica that I was using and get, I got it all together and dumped it into a CSV in no time. And I would have had so much difficulty in like hard coding this, all of this parallel logic uh, with like demand driven, um, with a demand driven architecture if I were to do it myself. And I literally just had to add some lines to mix, add some lines to my script, turned that enum to a flowable enumerable, and then I was done with it. It was a breeze, like super nice to use and so useful. So I re definitely recommend anyone who's just like heard about it and doesn't think maybe you're, you'll be over engineering. Believe me, maybe you won't, and it can be that useful. So yeah, that's my last pick. No, that is cool. It, yes, you're right. It, flow is something that has been around for some time, but it is worth uh, talking about because there's a lot of value there. And I think it's, it's a great little testament that you gave there. And um, it, it's worth talking about also because there's continually people coming to the Elixir community and there's a lot of stuff that since it's not part of the core library, it's worth talking about and making people aware of it. So thanks for sharing that. Well, uh, Daniel, it has been awesome talking to you today. I really appreciate it. We've, talk, we've covered a lot of material here. And so I encourage people to check out the show notes. Uh, if people want to get in touch with you or follow you, uh, where would you direct them to go? I think Twitter is probably the best place, uh, twitter.com slash DNL Serrano. Um, but uh, I also have a, a website where I blog. Uh, so that's dnlserrano.dev. And uh, yeah, I can also link, link to that in, in the show notes. Awesome. Well, that's it for today. Thank you for listening. And we hope you'll join us next week on Elixir Mix. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.